Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Are we sure about this recovery? From a looming natural gas shortage to slowing Chinese growth to indecision in Washington, you have to start wondering. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on inflation, bond yields, and whether it's all just a blip. Markets are substantially underestimating what's likely to happen to interest rates before too long. Investors had their fair share to worry about this week, starting with a dramatic spike in natural gas prices in Europe, putting at risk heat in homes and power in China. Here's Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs Global Head of Commodity Research. This is just the first inning of a multi-year, potentially decade-long commodity supercycle. Which only fed the concerns already out there about inflation. Here is Republican Congressman French Hill of Arkansas. We have addiction to spending in this city. We've had since 1789, but it's on steroids right now, and it's creating inflationary expectations that I think could concern every retired person and every low-income person, because inflation is a thief. And when we talk inflation, concerns about the Fed tapering its bond purchases cannot be far behind, something Fed Chair Jay Powell put in play last week. So long as the recovery remains on track, a gradual tapering process that concludes around the middle of next year is likely to be appropriate. And did nothing to back off of during his testimony this week before the Senate Banking Committee. Mainly what we've seen is that the, the supply side restrictions that, that are so much at the heart of the inflation we're seeing have not only not gotten better, they've actually in some cases gotten worse. But then again, Senator Warren said that if she had her way, it wouldn't be Mr. Powell making the decisions anyway. Over and over, you have acted to make our banking system less safe 
And that makes you a dangerous man. And if all that weren't enough to set markets off this week, we had the continuing specter of the United States possibly defaulting on its debt as Republicans and Democrats continue to bicker over the debt ceiling, with each side blaming the other. Here's Senators Pat Toomey and Sherrod Brown. The Democrats have chosen to ignore our warnings about this excessive spending, but they want us to vote to raise the debt ceiling in order to permit the massive spending increases that they're planning. Senator Kennedy, I rarely speak between witnesses, but I wonder if Secretary Yellen takes you up on the offer to go get a cocktail, if um, if you would pay or you'd skip out on paying the bill and expect Secretary Yellen to pay. And the markets? Well, it could have been worse. After taking a hit on Tuesday, equities gained some of it back, with the S&P closing the week down just over 2%, while the Nasdaq took the biggest hit down over 3% for the week. While the 10-year yield, after jumping up on Tuesday, settled down a bit to end the week just under the 1.5 level. While Bitcoin put on a late-week surge, closing over 48000 To help us make some sort of sense out of these markets this week, welcome now Peter Krause. He's chairman and CEO of Aperture Investors. Welcome back. It's great to have you back on Wall Street Week, Peter. So give us a sense of what you think happened this week. Was it all about the 10-year yield? I think your, I think your opening remarks were terrific, but I would say the following. There's a lot of noise out there. So let's focus on the facts. The facts are the Fed has clearly said they're going to taper. The facts are the Fed has said, I'm not going to increase interest rates until well into 22, early 23. Facts are we continue to have growth. Facts are we continue to have elevated inflation, not runaway inflation. So in that sense, it's transitory, but certainly more inflation than we had at 1.5 to 2%. So if you have growth, you have inflation, you have the Fed saying they're going to taper, you have the Fed saying they're not going to increase interest rates. It seems pretty clear to me that long-term rates have to start rising, and they have been. On top of that, the energy prices are reacting, and we have growth. We're not at the point of a recession. So I, I think if you take away all the noise, it's actually reasonably clear. Well, but reasonably clear as, as a good market to invest in, as a questionable market? Because it seems like if you take this week and last week put together, both weeks for different reasons, we had big sell-offs in equities and then they come back again. It seems to be very choppy, as they say. Yeah, I think at the equity market, at, as, uh, at the level that it's at, is clearly at a value that is getting a little bit high. And I think the equity market's behaving that way. Now, I don't think we're going to see a recession, so I don't think we're going to see a significant pullback. But I've said for the last you know, six months to eight months, this equity market could certainly see a retrenchment of 10 to 15, perhaps even 20% as it reprices itself. The Fed activity over the last number of years has clearly driven interest rates to very low levels. We know real rates in the United States are negative. Real rates in Europe are negative. So what does that mean? That means that all the cash that might have been running after fixed income markets went in the equity markets. So clearly the capital allocation is not normal and people have more invested in the equity markets than traditionally and they've driven prices to high levels. So do we have volatility when rates start to move? Absolutely. Would you put cash in the equity market today? You'd probably wait to see for the volatility to reside. So the, the question is, if low rates really drive this so much, that does depend critically, does it not, on Jay Powell's statement, this is transitory, it's not permanent. Even this week when he was giving testimony up on the Hill, he said, you know, it's worse than we thought it was and it's more durable. And every time he talks, there's another reason. It was used cars, you know, and now it's natural gas prices. There's always something else. And those supply chain problems are going to linger for a while, aren't they, Peter? 
I do think they will. I, I, I don't like the word transitory because it suggests that the level of inflation that's currently there is going to recede to the level of inflation we had before rates or inflation became, quote unquote, higher. I don't think that's the case. And I actually don't think that's what Powell means. What I think he means is that 4%, 5% inflation is transitory, but not necessarily 2 or 2.5% two is transitory. And if we had 2 and 2.5% two and inflation that was normal and stable, we would definitely have higher rates and capital allocation would take place. And I suspect the equity market would have to reprice that. Thank you so much, Peter Krause. He's going to be staying with us as we take a closer look at inflation and how investors might cope if, in fact, it's here to stay, contrary to what Jay Powell claims. That's next. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. There was more talk of inflation this week, with Fed Chair Powell admitting it's a bit worse and more persistent than he'd expected, but still not really something to worry about. And natural gas prices really shot through the roof over in Europe because they have some problems with some supply chains. What if Chair Powell is wrong and real inflation is here to stay after all? What should an investor do? Still with us is Peter Krause of Aperture Investments. And now joining us is Nancy Davis of Quadratic Capital. She is the CIO and founder of that organization. So, Nancy, let's start with you. Because you've made something of a name for yourself when I say that in the area of inflation. I, I, without regard to whether you think it really is persistent or not, if it were to be persistent, what should an investor do? I think every investor needs to be concerned about inflation, especially retirees, because you're not going to benefit from the wage inflation if you're not in the labor force anymore. So we do live in a in a real world, and inflation is a risk to every investor portfolio because it reduces purchasing power. I think investors just shouldn't be taking a bet on whether it's transitory or not, and really should have, as part of a diversified portfolio, should own some amount of inflation protection. Well, just to follow up on that, Nancy, what does inflation protection look like? Is that gold? Is that real estate? What is that? Well, I definitely have a different view about what inflation protection is. I know a lot of investors look at commodities because that worked in the 70s in the last period of hyperinflation. But we just I think commodities are like the laptop, you know, I'm talking with you on tonight. It's deflationary. Technology has innovated in that space. So I just don't think commodities are the only way to think about how to capture inflation. I personally like using um, the difference between short and long dated rates as another measure of inflation expectations 
outside the consumer price index. I think that's a thing that investors have to keep in mind is that's just one index. It's like if you were to buy equities, nobody would buy just the Dow Jones index and say, oh, I have uh, all equities. I think investors have to be diversified. Peter, same question to you. If you need, yeah. I think Nancy makes a really good point about that. Uh, First of all, in in the commodity inflation time period, we didn't have the same kind of technology uh, boom that we see today. And we didn't have any, we're near these uh, social, um, I shouldn't say social, but uh, ecologically beneficial ways to actually produce energy. And Nancy's uh, business has has really focused on a a long-term structural benefit that's out there of taking advantage of the difference between short and long-term rates. And she's made it liquid. And I, I think that if you want to buy inflation protection, that's a piece, that's a, a part of your portfolio that you could easily tailor, own, and it would give you protection uh, to do that. You could also own commodities, but you are you are susceptible to supply and demand changes, political changes, technology changes. So there's more going on in the commodity world than there is in the sort of pure rate opportunity. So, Peter, let me just pick up on something you referred to, which is uh, what's going on with climate change and some of the things that are being done by the Biden administration and others in response to that. Julian Taylor, the Financial Times this week, wrote a column in which she called it greenflation because she said, as we make this transition, it's a massive transition away from greenhouse gases. It's got to drive some prices up. There's got to be inflation. Is she right? I I think she's right. I, I, I definitely think she's right. And I think it's a little bit difficult to calculate. So what I mean by that is we're all gonna move towards a green world. That's a good objective and we should go there. But what we don't know is how long is it gonna take us, us collectively as a global economy to actually get to the point where the green world is efficient, cost-effective and actually produces enough energy for us to operate our world in. And that time period, we don't know. And if we haven't invested enough in carbon fuels to actually have the supply to get us there, we're gonna see price spikes. And we're going to see them actually be very rapid and actually quite uh, disconcerting because you're not going to be able to increase the supply fast enough to be able to deal with the shortfall. Uh, one of the things, Nancy, clearly we have not invested enough in is supply chains all around the world. I mean, it started with semiconductors, but it's gone well beyond that. Take a look at all the ships lined up outside of Los Angeles and even here in New York. Uh, what about that as an effect on inflation? Is that going away anytime soon? Well, it's really a result of the supply shocks around the world. It hopefully will go away soon, but we're also having labor shocks at the same time. So goods and services are not being able to be shipped around the world. Factories are not working at full capacity. And it's a bit of a catch-22 because you know something's got to give eventually, and eventually uh, the demand will be met. The question is whether we're going to have higher <clears throat> costs without the earnings per share growth that has been priced into corporate America. If you look at stocks and corporate credit, the markets are really expecting a lot of growth. And when you listen to some of the companies as they report earnings this season, a lot of people are talking about the labor market and the delays and the higher costs that are not necessarily growthy costs. They're more potentially a stagflationary costs or we have higher costs but not the earnings per share growth. Peter, as I listened uh, to Nancy, a lot of what she describes is the direct result, I suspect, of the pandemic. We had to shut down the economy and then bring it back up. 
But is it really the cause of what we're seeing, or did the pandemic reveal some underlying structural weaknesses we had, perhaps around the supply chain, having too much devoted to certain countries, like, for example, China? Is it really revealing more structural issues for the economy that have to be addressed? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think you could argue that there was nothing structurally wrong with the supply chain, although it was clearly concentrated in certain areas. I mean, remember the nuclear disaster in Japan and uh, automobile manufacturers realized that their supply constraints were uh, disrupted dramatically because they were getting a lot of supplies out of Japan in a specific place that was near Fukushima. So natural events do have an effect on supply chain and COVID had the same effect, although on a global basis. And so, you know, now we're trying to figure out how do we diversify the supply chain so that effect isn't, doesn't happen as often. But we're always going to have some aggregation of supply because ultimately there's a benefit of suppliers being near each other. They use the same kind of labor costs, use the same kind of energy costs. And if those costs are low and attractive, you're going to attract the number of people that produce goods that have an ecosystem around them. So I suspect that you're always going to have these kinds of shocks in the supply chain when you have natural events that are catastrophic. So in that sense, I don't think that COVID exposed a weakness. It exposed kind of the persistent issue you have when you're when you've got a global supply, uh, you know, structure and effectively there's a concentration in the system somewhere. Really interesting discussion about inflation and the labor market and commodities and the climate change. Can't get much more in than that. Thank you so much to Peter Kraus of Aperture Investments and also to Nancy Davis of Quadratic Capital, where she is CIO and founder. Coming up, Bloomberg opinion columnist Frank Berry has some bad news for New Yorkers. When it comes to elections, Boston is beating you. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Over the next six weeks, Boston voters will witness a hotly contested campaign to determine the city's next mayor. While in New York, voters know that November's mayoral election is all but over. We're joined now by Bloomberg opinion columnist Frank Berry, who writes, admit it, New Yorkers, Boston is beating us. Uh, I took a look at the cities from a different perspective, which is politics. And the contrast between Boston and New York could not be any different right now. Boston's in the middle of an extremely close, heated, closely followed uh, mayoral election uh, between two women. And in New York, it's the opposite. We've got an election that um, no one's particularly following because no one has any expectation that the outcome will be any different than uh, what everyone believes it will be. And in part, that is because we have Eric Adams, uh, the former New York uh, police captain, uh, who is the nominee of the Democratic Party, and New York City is overwhelmingly Democratic. New York City is overwhelmingly Democrat. He won the Democratic Party primary. He's facing a Republican who has marginal support, uh, has raised a little bit of money, not a lot. Uh, but it's a race that's really devoid of debate. It's not capturing anybody's attention. Uh, and I think that's in large part because everyone expects that Adams will win uh, running away. In Boston, it's the exact opposite story. It's a very close race between two Democrats uh, who uh, both have strong bases of support. One is running more from the left. One is running more from the center. And so it's very much a debate about Boston, but it has national uh, repercussions or overtones because it mirrors a debate that is playing 
playing out in Washington and in cities across the country between uh, the progressive wing of the party and the more centrist wing. And you put your finger on the structural difference, which is you have two Democrats running against each other. Uh, you don't you don't have a Republican versus a Democrat the way you do in New York City. Correct. So in Boston, they run a election process that is often called top two or nonpartisan, and everyone gets to compete on the same ballot in the first round of voting in the primary. And the top two finishers, no matter what party they belong to, advance to the November general election. So that way, you're assured of getting two candidates who are your two strongest candidates, no matter what party they belong to. In New York, we run party primaries, so each party gets a chance to advance one candidate. The problem is uh, the Republican Party has been weak for many decades, and they often go outside their party to find someone and often don't find a strong candidate. And so you end up often with a very highly competitive Democratic primary uh, and um, a Republican candidate who's very weak. And so in New York, we had a very closely contested Democratic primary, Eric Adams one against a, a very strong field, uh, including two uh, women candidates who were close on his heels. Uh, but that effectively ended the election. And the November contest that will take place is basically a foregone conclusion. Whereas in Boston, uh, they're getting a chance. They also had a competitive primary. But because they didn't give a Republican a free pass to the general election, Republican had to compete in the primary, same as everyone else. Uh, they were able to advance to November two candidates who either one of them uh, has a shot at winning this. So it could be a coincidence, but you mentioned it's two women in Boston. New York City, in its history, has never had a woman mayor, which is pretty extraordinary. Never had a woman mayor. And we came as close as we ever have this year to uh, to having a serious uh, uh, woman in the general election. And had New York been running Boston's system of, of elections where you advance the, the top two, uh, it's very likely, in fact, uh, I'd say it's most likely that one of those women, if not both, but uh, certainly one of them, would have been in the November election. And we may very well be uh, talking about uh, the next woman mayor or the first woman mayor of New York. So let's talk about possible reform. Uh, what are the prospects of reform of the system in New York City. And I, we should have a little disclaimer here that you worked on uh, Michael Bloomberg's campaigns for mayor. And he, of course, is the majority owner and founder of Bloomberg LP, our parent company. Correct. So now that out of the way, what are the prospects of changing that? <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, a Boston kid, I might add. Oh, that's right. You've got another disclaimer to make. That's <laughs> right, right. So we've got yeah, all kinds of Boston. disclaimers here. But um, it's, it's always been an uphill battle in New York because the parties are strong. And uh, it, in general, neither the Democratic Party organizations nor the Republican Party organizations are eager to change the system uh, because they have certain advantages that come with the status quo. Um, I actually worked on a, um, uh, an effort to change the system that Mayor Bloomberg had uh, uh, supported back in the uh, early days of his administration. Uh, but um, for a variety of reasons, it failed, including running in a, in a, in a low turnout, uh, it was a referendum in a low turnout mm -hmm. primary campaign. But it's my hope that, um, that voters will take a look at what's going on in New York and what's going on not just in Boston, but in places like Seattle, uh, places like Atlanta, Cincinnati, Cleveland, other places that run their elections like Boston are also going to have very competitive uh, elections in November. And places that run them like New York, which uh, we're seeing in uh, Pittsburgh and Buffalo, are, are having the opposite of that, having the same scenario where the winner of the, the primary election is uh, basically your rubber stamp winner for the general. That's Bloomberg opinion columnist Frank Berry. 
Coming up, we wrap up the week as we always do with Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to turn to Larry Summers of Harvard once again, our special contributor on Wall Street Week, to really take us through the week. Larry, first of all, let's start with inflation, something we've talked about, I think, every single week. But we got really some news this week, in in no small way because of what happened with the 10-year yield on the Treasury, which really spiked up. It's still a modest number overall, but it climbed really quickly. And you and I have talked about the question, if we really have an inflation problem, why isn't the 10-year yield going up? Look, it may be that this is a recognition of some combination of the fact that we're going to have more inflation and that the Fed's going to do more than people thought it was going to need to do in order to uh, contain uh, inflation. You know, once these things start, they sometimes have a tendency uh, to trend. So I stand by my view that markets are substantially underestimating what's likely to happen to interest rates before too long. You know, if you look at the so-called Taylor rules, predictions of Fed behavior, and you feed any kind of traditional Taylor rule through with the way current economic data is running, it points you to a pretty substantial concern about uh, inflation overheating. So I've got pretty real uh, anxieties I think what's happening with oil makes the kind of parallel that I've drawn to the 60s and 70s look more real. We just seem to be having a lot of surprising bad shocks that are lasting longer than you think. And when you keep being surprised again and again, it suggests that there's a pattern and you're missing it. I think that's a bit the case with inflation. And of course, this week, We saw some growing sense that while Europe is not nearly as far along in this as we are, that even in Germany, uh, inflation's rising to uh, surprising levels for them. At the same time, we have uh, a back and forth up on Capitol Hill about spending more money, more potential fiscal stimulus. 
Uh, this week we had Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, come out and say, I don't like $3.5 trillion for this Build Back Better plan. I like it more like a $1.5 trillion. Now, I don't know exactly what's in Joe Manchin's plan, but I remember last week on this program, Wall Street Week, you said what you thought they should do is do something less than $3.5 trillion and make it more targeted. Is Joe Manchin taking the Democrats in the right direction, do you think? Look, I think if the, if the bill shrinks somewhat, even more important if it's paid for, even more important if it's paid for without gimmicks. I, I worry about too many things being done where they're funded for three years and everybody assumes it'll be funded after that, or it's announced right now that it'll start being funded in uh, seven years. Uh, it's crucial that there be some quality to the spending relative to the revenue rather than excessive reliance on uh, timing gimmicks. If we can avoid timing gimmicks, if we can pay for it, and we can be disciplined in focusing on what will grow uh, the economy, it is hugely important that we pass a bill. It is hugely important that we start doing more than we have done on uh, climate change, uh, for example. And I'm not sure that we need to do everything that Senator Manchin is calling for uh, there. I think there's a lot that absolutely needs to uh, happen, even if there is uh, some short-term dislocation. Uh, so I'd like to see, I think it's desperately important that we pass a bill. I hope that this process of, com of compromise uh, will eventually uh, get to an end. And I'm guardedly optimistic that at the end of a process that won't have been pretty to watch, we'll get something that may not correspond to some people's uh, dreams, but will actually be a strong set of initiatives to invest in the future of our country that's more significant. Larry, I wonder if you see a possible connection between these two things, inflation on the one hand and what we're doing with climate on the other that you just referred to. In, in this sense, we saw, for example, natural gas prices really spike up in Europe. We've got problems now in China. Uh, is this something that is really going to stay with us on the inflation front? Because as we convert over to potentially zero greenhouse gases, there's got to be a cost. I think that's a risk. It's a complicated thing, David, because if you reduce the demand for fossil fuels, that will presumably reduce their price, not increase their price. And that aspect of it will be uh, anti-inflationary. But I think this is something we need to carefully uh, monitor and watch. I think the time frames are somewhat different. The inflation threats are of things becoming a bit unhinged in the next year or two. The climate plans are things that will play out over quite a long uh, time period. But it's absolutely something that we need to pay uh, very close attention to as we, uh, as we set uh, the policies going forward. Another- uh, I could just say, if I, if I could, can I just add something on the please. subject of the, tech, of the tax debate uh, that we're having? I don't think it's going to happen. It would be fantastic, actually, if we were able to place some kind of uh, tax on uh, some kind of fee on fossil fuels not laid directly at uh, consumers, 
but placed upstream on the businesses that produce them. I think that would be probably the best uh, public policy uh, there as the late George Schultz and I advocated uh, several uh, years ago. Beyond that, I do think that one thing Senator Manchin has said is absolutely right. And that is that we should be repealing much of the Trump tax cuts. There is no conceivable reason why we cannot have a 25% corporate tax rate in uh, the United States without damaging competitiveness of U.S. companies. Costs of capital are near zero. It is not cost of capital that is inhibiting investment uh, right now. This is something we surely should be doing. And on that, I am right with Senator Manchin. I'm right with uh, the administration. I hope Senator Sinema, it's not clear exactly uh, where she stands, and she studied all of this very, very carefully, but I hope she will see her way clear to support a carefully measured tax program that raises revenue we surely need from people who surely can afford it um, without doing damage uh, to investment. Okay, Larry Summers Harvard, thank you so very much for being back with us. Larry, of course, is our special contributor here at Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Taking a random walk on a hamster wheel. We spend a lot of our time trying to understand the markets, explain the markets, even predict the markets. And we have no shortage of experts who can tell us what the markets are doing, at least in retrospect. The market is, first of all, rationalizing. The bond and equity joint sell-off. This, you know, growing anxiety. We're trying to read the tea leaves. People are just closing their eyes and waiting for this all to be worked out. We basically entered a high volatility regime. If you've got a 10-year yield at 1.5%. The steepening in the yield curve. The Fed has said that they're changing policy. They've telegraphed the tapering. Delta fears have caused concerns. All the pressure on on Evergrande and Chinese debt markets. You get volatility. Some days are going to be pretty uncomfortable. Everybody's crying. Volatility ahead indeed. But now coming out of Germany, we have a useful reminder of just how modest we should be about how much we think we know about the markets. Meet Mr. Gox. He is a hamster and, like most hamsters, spends his day running on a hamster wheel, going in and out of tubes in his cage. But his cage is a bit different. His owner has set it up so Mr. Gox can trade cryptocurrencies. Which currency he wants to trade depends on where he stops on his wheel. And whether he's on the buy side or the sell side depends on which tube Mr. Gox goes in or out of. And we can all watch Mr. Gox make his investment decisions in real time because it is streamed on Twitch. And, of course, Mr. Gox has his own Twitter account as well. And the results? Well, let's put it this way. Since June, Mr. Gox's portfolio of cryptocurrencies is up 16%. If you're keeping score, that's better than Bitcoin, better than the S&P 500, and it's even better than Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. But, on the other hand, if you watch carefully that streaming video, you notice something about Mr. Gox. He actually isn't so much a crypto trader as a crypto holder. Because most of the time, Mr. Gox is in his cage, not doing much of anything. He's not on a wheel. He's not going in and out of the tubes. So maybe, in one sense, Mr. Gox is a long-term investor. Does that remind you of anyone? Like, for example, investing icon Warren Buffett? 
I'm buying stocks, and I, but I'm not buying because I think they're going to go up next year. I'm buying them because I think they'll be worth quite a bit more money 10 years or 20 years from now. And I don't know whether they're going to go up or down tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. I do know they're good businesses. So perhaps maybe the German hamster, Mr. Gox, is one more follower of Ben Graham and Warren Buffett. That does it for Wall Street Week for this week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.